Welcome back to the Broken Earth Spoilers Podcast. Before we get into the episode, we're going to start with a little bit of housekeeping. It is June 25th, which means that I am still technically in time to make a mention of Juneteenth, the holiday that celebrates the arrival of the news of emancipation two and a half years after the end of the Civil War in Texas. I wrote a bunch of stuff about this in my show notes before I actually sat down to record, so it feels a little bit off because I missed... Uh, the, the bulk of the social media hashtagging-ness with when I'm going to get this published, but it's still June. My notes basically boil down to it is our obligation as Americans to recognize and honor Juneteenth. And for white people, that recognition should probably definitely be in the form of some kind of reparations in the form of donations to organizations that are fighting for social justice year round. In my show notes, I have a hyperlink for this, uh, but verbally I will tell you that our, there is an article I found. The URL is esquire.com forward slash news dash politics how to observe Juneteenth by donating to organizations fighting for racial justice. That's where the hyperlink will lead. And then if you scroll down, it's got a whole bunch of links to different causes that you can donate to. So there's like the George Floyd Memorial Fund. There's the North Star Health Collective, Black Visions Collective. There's donating to bail funds like the Bail Project, Black Youth Support, like Black Girls Code, Colin Kaepernick Know Your Rights Camp, NAACP, obviously. Black Lives Matter, not Black Lives Matter Foundation. Fuck that shit. You have to go to the real website. Uh, there's also Black LGBTQ uh, stuff like the Marsha P. Johnson Institute, highly appropriate during June, right? Trans Justice Funding Project. Also suggestions for various museums that you could donate to. It's just generally, if you're white, you should probably put some money towards Black people if you're going to be excited about Juneteenth celebrations. Maybe this message is getting to you a little bit late for the trending month of Juneteenthness, but this is an issue that persists year-round, so don't feel bad if you're late, just get to it. Part of anti-racism work is just getting out of your white normative bubble in any way, shape, or form, and a great way to do that is through reading from non-white authors, and also reading from them on topics other than addressing racism. You can't only see black people through the lens of their anti-racist struggle. You have to also see them through the lens of their joy and their silly art projects and their romances and, you know, their entire complete whole lives as human beings, not just the poster children for a problem that we pay attention to in June and February. Also, it's really cool if you can buy books from black booksellers. There was a whole thing that I definitely have missed at this point. Uh, with when I'm publishing this, but it was, uh, it was blackout publishing, I think was the hashtag. But the idea was to push a bunch of, uh, black authors up onto the bestseller lists and give a boost to black booksellers all in one giant two day swoop. So when I did that, I, I managed, to, I might have not gotten this episode out in time, but I did get my wallet out in time. And I bought three different books by various black authors on a range of topics from the black owned bookstore semicolonchi.com. There's a link in the show notes. And I believe it's in Chicago. I want to say it's like a black woman owned art gallery. Yeah, art gallery bookstore. 
space, if I recall the blurb on the website correctly, but it looked really cool. And they had books that were, what was it? I had to, I, t- I made my conditions that they had to be by living authors and they had to be in stock so that I could get them right away. So I had to sort through a bunch of stuff that I kind of wanted to get because it was either not in stock or the author was dead. And I was like, I want to focus on putting money into the wallets of living authors in this particular moment. A couple of other pieces of housekeeping. There is now a dedicated Discord server for this podcast. You can come to my server and interact with me and some of your fellow fans and have cool conversations about stuff. Uh, It's still a baby server. I'm still working it all out. So come help me manifest the space and make it into whatever it's going to become. Relatedly, I've set up a Patreon account for the podcast. Finally, you can look me up as uh, BE Spoilers on Patreon. A link for the Discord and the Patreon will both be in the show notes. The Patreon, I'm basically just setting up as like a glorified tip jar. I've only got one really low tier and there's not going to be a whole lot of exclusive content associated with being a Patreon. I want to focus on making this podcast. And if you would like to give me money for what I'm doing already, I very much appreciate it. And we'll find a few small ways to uh, express that appreciation to you specifically. But I'm not going to put a lot of effort into creating a giant multi-tiered exclusive content monstrosity when I can barely keep up with producing the content I'm already producing. So uh, if you'd like to drop a few dollars my way, there is a way for you to do that now. Uh, Please don't feel obligated. There's it's really not. uh, I'm not making a very good case for why you should give me money, am I? There's a Patreon. Feel free to use it. Stay tuned to the end of the episode for a journal entry on my anti-racism accountability. For now... Let's move into chapter 13. You're on the trail. You are listening to the Broken Earth Spoilers podcast. Your host is Aradia. You're on the trail. This is what you are at the vein. This small and petty creature. This is the bedrock of your life. Father Earth is right to despise you. But do not be ashamed. You may be a monster, but you are also great. Interesting way to start the chapter. I can't quite decide if that's Hoa speaking to Esun or if it's like Esun addressing her past self. Because it kind of works either way, I think. I don't really know what else to make of it. This feels like it's really profound, but I, I don't know what to get out of it. As far as the title, I had a lot of thoughts about the title. (laughs) The title is, it could refer to so many things. I think that it refers to all of the things. She's on the trail of Nasuna and Jija. She's on the trail of finding Kastrima and Alabaster. And she's on the trail for reckoning with her past and preparing for the future in which she gets the moon back. Granted, she only knows that she's on one of those trails. But the other two pairings work so well to me that it has to mean all of them. I'm just, I I think it has to mean all of them. This is a triple meaning situation. As an overview, this chapter is an Essun chapter in which the party of Essun, Hoa, and Tonki gets formed up and travels through the early stages of the season and gets pointed towards Kastrima and on a collision course with Kastrima. 
I think the total travel time, the total story timeline covered in this chapter is in the range of two to three months. I tried to count it out and it's pretty vague, but I think no less than two and probably no more than three months are covered by this chapter. The chapter starts with giving us a more thorough introduction to Tonki, starting with her name and ending with a description of where she's been living for the past two or more years. We see the beginning of the small drama that is the relationship between Tonki and Hoa, in which she wants to study him and he is having none of it. That's pretty much their relationship for the entire uh, series. I suspect that in all of his visions of how the end of this war would go, in all of the 40,000 years of wanting to finish what got started in Silanagist, or finish what he started in Silanagist specifically, in all of that time, all of those scenarios, I really doubt that he ever anticipated a sidekick like Tonki. <laughs> like... She breaks the mold. You know, he probably always saw it as a matter of, I'm going to have to convince one of these origins to catch the moon, and it's going to be a whole thing with their childhood traumas. He probably anticipated that. But how do you anticipate that sort of a sidekick? Just like more interested in studying you than afraid of you. That's a Stone Eater's major tool, aside from actually killing people, is their ability to freak them out. And Tonki is not freaked out. <laughs> Another reason why I love Tonki. We also get a super interesting clue about her former life. Her old teachers at the 7th University in D-Bars have actually tried before to hunt her down with assassins? Like, I, I need the backstory here. I am so curious what that is about. I mean, I guess she could be exaggerating or paranoid, but like... I could totally see her antagonizing someone who has a lot of power to the point of sending assassins. Like she is that persistent and that stubborn and that unwilling to respect authority. I don't know. Maybe academia is that ruthless <laughs> that that would happen. I, I don't know. I I think it really sucks that we never get more details about that youthful escapade, whether or not she's exaggerating or just paranoid in general. I, I really want to know why she says that. And of course, we don't get to know, but I want that fanfic. Why? Why did that happen? <laughs> Essun still doesn't know that this is Beanoff leadership humanist standing in front of her. So we get an internal thought that shows Essun's own educational elitism from her time as Cyanite. Which, of course, as a first-time reader, you don't know that they are the same woman yet. But this is another clue that Jemison's giving you. That Essun has the level of education that Cyanite also had. I mean, some people probably had already guessed they were the same person by here. But I think it's a clue that I should have picked up the first time that I definitely didn't. So, <laughs> the geographic setting of where Tonki lives deserves some serious attention from us because what she lives inside the collapsed remains of a vesicle a lava bubble normal little hole in like pumice or whatever but this is the size of a small hill like ah! i spent a few minutes googling if there are vesicles this large in our iteration of the world and I didn't find anything like what she's describing here. But 
I looked up collapsed lava tube ecosystems and I found some really cool pictures of collapsed lava tubes in Hawaii on a tourism website. And so if you kind of put those two things together, a vesicle and a collapsed lava tube that has a forest growing in it, you put those two concepts together and you just add a dash of orogeny to the model. And I think you can pretty much extrapolate what's going on here visually quite well. So imagine a cave but just the shell of the walls. And then take away most of the ceiling and crumble away a lot from the sides or replace parts of the walls with smaller bubbles that are joined on in the same way, like in a fractal descending size sort of thing. Use orogeny to justify some supporting pillars of obsidian randomly scattered about, and then fill the space and surrounding area with subtropical forest because I'm pretty sure that this is not a tropical location. So let's just not even bother making it a jungle. Let's call it what it is, a subtropical forest. Does that make sense? It's, it's open enough to the sky that you forget that you're essentially underground, but you're sheltered enough to be in a far more protective patch of forest than you would like ever find anywhere else. These environments completely exist in the real world, in these collapsed caves, collapsed lava tubes, collapsed limestone caves. These are totally things that exist in the real world. I just couldn't find examples of vesicles that are like this. They might exist, or this might be the result of orogeny in this world, doing things that could never happen in the real world. I'm not really sure because I wasn't sure if I was Googling the terms I would need to find this because it seems like maybe it has a special term for it. Like, I don't know. I, I didn't spend as much time researching this as I would have if it was like a research paper for school because <laughs> I just wanted to find you guys cool pictures, basically. So let's continue on with the geology tangent here. Limestone landscapes are actually notorious for this kind of collapsed cave structure, open air forest inside the earth kind of thing. It's an excellent example is... I'm going to mispronounce this. I'm sorry. Hang Sun Dong in Vietnam. Okay, I just found a video that called it Song Dong. Song Dong. Without the Hang. Hong? Hang in front of it. Um, apologies to anyone who understands Vietnamese and is cringing right now. The point is, there is a absolutely amazing cave in Vietnam. And it's a national park and it's protected from people for the most part but it's like obnoxiously giant and has a bunch of forests in it from where the the ceiling has collapsed into the cave and allowed a bunch of light and earth and water in and they're really magical environments there's a lot in the world but when i was looking at pictures of course i had to find you guys the biggest one right so just imagine the biggest most epic cave you've ever seen and then combine that with a rock fall and a forest yeah, highly encourage you guys to look up documentaries, pictures about this. I have one link uh, to a CNN travel article about it that has a lot of cool facts. It's real, real pretty. Also, I wanted to talk a bit about lava tubes because you may have noticed that however many minutes ago I started talking about this, I mentioned collapsed lava tubes as a model for understanding a collapsed vesicle. So briefly, to summarize the information that I found on lovebigisland.com, which is a silly name, but it was a well-done website of touristy awesomeness. And well, tourism isn't necessarily awesome, but 
It was a well-done website with lots of awesome pictures and well-written descriptions of why you should want to visit different places. So it was a good source of information for me. So combining the information that I found on lovebigisland.com and what I know about lava tubes in general, lava tubes are conduits formed by flowing lava that cools at its edges faster than in the middle of the flow or along the bottom of the channel. It ends up crusting over and making a tunnel that it continues to flow through building its length. Eventually the flow of the lava stops and the tunnel drains out mostly and what little lava is left in the tunnel will shrink as it cools and then you end up with a void, a tunnel that is entirely lava on all or cooled lava rock on all sides. Because this process works best with lava that flows smoothly, Hawaii is brimming with cool lava tube systems that you can visit. But they actually also exist pretty much anywhere that there have been prolonged flows of lava. So there's tons here in Oregon where we had the Columbia River flood basalts just pouring across the landscape forever and ever and ever. And we have the Cascade Mountains. There's some to the north of me, kind of near Portland, that my dad wants me to go visit with him sometime. And there's some to the east that I went to on a fifth grade field trip uh, over in the dry part of the state. That was the only time I've actually been in a lava tube, but it was super, super cool and also literally cold because it's a cave in the earth. So it's 55 degrees no matter how warm it is outside, which was awesome for me because it was a summer field trip. Also, fun fact, there are documented lava tubes on the moon, Mars and Venus because volcanism is everywhere. So back to the story. In this particular cave of wonders, Tonky turns out not to live with cannibals. Though she does cohabit with some wild animals that found the smaller caves of the vesicle to be good dens. She has a totally chaotic collection of scavenged things, ranging from totally useless junk to precious, precious food. To Asun's relief, she takes a bath with the water taken from the roadhouse where the Kirkuza got turned into stone. And the description of how she, quote, shamelessly strips down and squats to scrub just has me shaking my head at how field scientists can go so super feral when left away from society for too long. <laughs> like, personal boundaries? What? Nah. I mean, it's not really a boundaries thing. It's a shame thing. But it's like... I mean, I remember one time when we were uh, down in Southern, yeah, Southern California, it was high desert California for field camp. There was really nowhere you could go to pee in privacy because it was just a big, giant, sun-filled field of sediment that you had to, you know, qualify what was happening or it was a big moraine and there's no trees on it. Um, so people would just go a sufficient distance away and then piss because it's like you're drinking tons of water right and you're out there for an eight hour field day like you're not gonna not pee <laughs> but we all had to like we're all classmates right but we all had to just sort of learn like oh yeah they're walking away from the group in that way that says that we're all just gonna casually not look in that direction because they need to pee and th that's as much privacy as we can afford them so i mean Tonky is a little bit more than a college student on a field trip, but still, she is a field scientist that has gone fully feral, and I love her for it. This is also where Esun notices that Tonky has a penis and reflects on how it doesn't really matter since she isn't really the ideal model of a breeder. And I think that's interesting because it's a piece of world building in general, 
because it lets us know that biological reductionism is still a thing, but transness is not explicitly persecuted. And it also tells us some interesting stuff about Tonki's backstory. Or it doesn't tell us about her backstory so much as set us up to appreciate her backstory later when we get it at the end. But I'll spoil it for you guys now, because like, you know, spoilers. <laughs> so we learn at the end of the book when Tonki is sort of explaining her actual backstory as Beanoff and all of that, that she was born into leadership and leadership doesn't use the breeder class to maintain their families. It's this whole weird thing where most of society uses the breeders to maintain the population, however that works. It's sort of hand wavy as far as the story goes, but that's the idea. But then the leadership use cast actually doesn't do that. They actually breed within their own caste. So there's like this whole like super weird eugenic thing that we should unpack that's in that. But I'm going to get to it another time because that's just a lot to unpack. And I have a lot of notes for this chapter already. So we're going to discuss that at a later date. <laughs> but for now, it's just it's an interesting little tidbit we get here to be like, oh, well, she wouldn't have been considered a breeder anyway when it, it turns out that she never would have been because of who her family was. And we learn at that point in the story that she actually still could have been married off to someone she could have had babies with. But she was such an insanely smart, combative, not playing nicely with others sort of person <laughs> that they just gave up when her gender identity scuttled all of their marriage plans for her. But like the way the story gets told at the end of the book, it very much suggests that like they could have just, you know, paired her up the other way around biologically. So that way they still got an heir for the family out of it. But Tonki was just not having any of it. I love that we also get this sort of hint of how Tonki has been living for the past two or more years, probably more like 10, 15, 20 years in this like full on crunchy, alternative, hippie, paranoid conspiracy theory sort of lifestyle, if that makes any sense, if that amalgamation of word made any sense. When the narrative talks about how she has this antifungal rinse that the far more mainstream as soon is doubtful actually is antifungal, it just totally makes me think of weird hippies that are like having their own homemade whatevers. And then people from the city are like, I brought my own thanks. <laughs> I've seen this dynamic myself many times. But it also made me think that it really fits with Tonki having spent the last decade or more rubbing shoulders with fringe geomasts studying discredited subjects. Like, I mean, picture it with me. I can see like cold pizza boxes and a dirty mattress in the corner and these college student age anarchists plotting how to bring down the government with a careful campaign of flyers with subliminal messages on their campus. Like I can see that being where Tonki was at when she was at university and when she was shifting into getting not at university and calling all of the geomests. I forget what she calls them, but blind idiots, I think, is the uh, TLDR of whatever her far more creative insult is. I think that the antifungal cream just or antifungal rinse that Estune doubts is antifungal just really fits with like building this picture of Tonki as a very creative fringe <laughs> character. 
Asun lets Hoa sleep next to her, but discourages cuddling, which he doesn't want anyway. I think it's because he's really only interested in maintaining proximity to her. He has no interest in any sort of emotional or physical intimacy. I think that changes by the time he's like an adult or a gene and they've gone through some shit. But at this point, I think he's just anxious to maintain trust and connection at all. And the next day, they all leave, all three of them. And I really wonder at why Esun accepts that Tonki is going to go with them. Like, why? Tonki clearly has a chill place to live. It's not like traveling with Hoa and Esun is going to make her more likely to survive the season, particularly not in light of the limited information that Esun has about Tonki at this point. I guess it must just be the fact that Esu knows Tonki knows that the season will be uber bad. So any amount of calm is safer than being calmless. And Esun and Hoa could certainly use another person in their, you know, pseudo calm to discourage trouble from others, safety in numbers. It might be that simple. And she does think in the next passage that it makes her feel almost normal to be with the two of them. So there's sort of a bit of comfort seeking that might justify her choice also. And finally, she doesn't know that the final reckoning of the moon is only three years in her future. She's just trying to survive long enough to rescue her daughter. And Tonki isn't explicitly getting in the way of that. So why fight it? I mean, she's very driven by priorities like that. Then Asun reflects that Hoa is certainly not human, and he's not giving her any details beyond just being unhappy. He refuses to talk about anything to do with the Kirkusa or anything. He really just doesn't want to talk about it, but she's like, he's not human, that's for sure. But she reflects that this doesn't bother her, and I would like to read you the explanation. Officially speaking, you're not human either. Per the Second Humanessian Lore Council's Declaration on the Rights of the Orogenically Afflicted, a thousand-ish years ago. She's like, just casually like, yeah, I'm not human. It's a thousand-year-old law. That's a thousand years old. It's not even a law. It's a declaration. It's such a trip to be like... <sighs> I'm saying that and then I'm just like, oh God, right, the parallels. Right, let's think about this. So... We don't actually get the wording of this declaration that declares orogenically afflicted people are not people. But if you don't see the parallels to American history, I'm thinking specifically of the uh, three-fifths rule, because that has such profound implications for the way that political power got moved around in this country, the way that the headcount worked out for stuff like I want to say it was for the Electoral College and gerrymandering it's been a while since I've read into that specific explanation let me see if I can find something real quick Ah, yes, I found it. Thank you, Wikipedia. Let me just read what Wiki says. I know Wiki's not the best resource always, but this is the summary I was looking for the compromise solution was to count three out of every five slaves as people for this purpose. Its effect was to give the southern states a third more seats in Congress and a third more electoral votes if 
than if slaves had been ignored, but fewer than if slaves and free people had been counted equally. Yeah. So I don't know what fucking tomfoolery was actually being invoked a thousand-ish years ago in the stillness to justify why origins needed to be officially classified as non-human. But that's where my mind goes. There must have been some sort of politically motivated reason for doing that. It can't have just been because the Guardians were so philosophically horrified at the idea of their charges being human. There had to have been some sort of political something something and a thousand-ish years ago it's not like it matters to our story but it does matter in a way okay let me put this note in my notes so that way when you see the show notes you get all my information and then there's also uh, a bunch of stuff that came up on google for me comparing uh the three-fifths ruling to gerrymandering and how that works with prison populations today, because we don't have the three-fifths rule, obviously, but we do have disenfranchisement via felony convictions or simply being in prison or being counted as part of the voting populace because they're in prison, but not getting to vote because they're in prison. Um, I'm going to throw what looks to be a fairly old article from prisonersofthecensus.org into the notes also. Because this is talking about this issue in a lot more detail than I'm giving you right now. Yeah, this article pretty much hits hits the highlights of what I was saying, just far more eloquently and with more hyperlinks. So if you guys want to dig into that more, I recommend that link that is in the show notes. The website address is prisonersofthecensus.org slash news slash 2001 slash 09 slash 09 slash three fifths. Or just go to my show notes. <laughs> or throw it into Google and look for the website that has Prisoners of the Census in the URL. So next, the chapter takes us into the first phase of the travel montage. That is the bulk of this chapter. Asun has enough masks for all three of them, for reasons that hardly bear thinking about. And they start to use them even though the ash has yet to reach its worst qualities of microglass. If you have ever worked with diatomaceous earth for food preservation or for slug control, that's what I'm thinking of here. That's about the worst that ash can get. These itty, itty bitty pieces of glass that will just slice you to pieces in your lungs. Or turn to cement inside your lungs because it is clay-sized particles that might be worse. Either way, do not breathe ash ever if you can avoid it, but particularly not if it is glassy or clayey. I'm actually reading a book about Krakatoa right now, and uh, yeah. When six miles of mountain vaporize into ash, do your best to avoid breathing it. Just good life advice. We see the huddled masses of refugees take on a gray steampunk apocalypse anonymity behind their masks, goggles, and frosting of ash. Our party is able to blend into the crowd for a while, which is good. Over time, though, the crowd thins and clumps with people either dying or reaching a safe harbor or banding together as they travel. The descriptions in the narrative of the ones that die by just sitting on the side of the road waiting to die reminded me of some of the deaths that have happened on Mount Everest, which I should mention is called Sagramatha to the Nepalese. And 
Chomolungma to the Tibetans. Again, apologies for those horrible pronunciations, but hyperlink to that information will also be in the show notes. <laughs> so you can practice yourself. The point is, people have climbed past their fellows while dying or shortly after they've died. And many of the bodies, many of the people that die up there stay up there to be climbed past year after year and used as landmarks until extra brave volunteers bring them down. Or increasingly, climate change is also bringing them down. Mount Everest is a uh, macabre fascination of mine. I read Into Thin Air in 2009 or so and have been weirdly obsessed with Mount Everest and other mountaineering deaths and disasters ever since. So, uh, <laughs> shrug emoji. I'm never going to go there, try to climb a mountain. My One of my bucket list items is to get to base camp, but that's a really unrealistic <laughs> item. So I have <laughs> no intention of trying to get to the top of Everest. Fuck that. David Sharp is the most famous story of somebody who was abandoned while dying by fellow climbers on Everest. It's happened to many other people, but David Sharp is the most famous story. Obviously, in a season, like in this world, it's not quite as heartless of a decision to be leaving these injured people to die on the side of the road, but the image still sort of stuck with me. Or not the image, but the comparison stuck with me. So now, most of the people that our party sees are displaced equatorials, suddenly made calmless by the end of the world. This is a common category of people in fiction and in the real world, unfortunately. We see how the cultural emphasis on calmhood has people rapidly sorting themselves into small groups that Essun calls tribes because they aren't proper calms, but they're more than random groups of calmless also. We get to meet one such group, which is a perfect seed microcosm for what it would take to get a calm going again, with five women of different ages and one young, very uncertain man. Certainly, it's not a sufficiently large gene pool, but it's enough of a structure to get going and be in a good bargaining position for joining up with other family groups down the line. The way that Essun is able to tell that they are forming a tribe is because they have a shared decoration a scrap of formerly useless cloth from a bygone era. They're gaining practical tools and skills to survive, but they're keeping this little bit of finery as a token of their unity, not their vanity. It's a way for them to have that distinguishment of us versus them. So let's move briefly sideways and discuss the use of the word tribe. As somebody raised by earthy hippies in the 90s, I was very familiar with using the term tribe to describe your chosen family musical group. Just that casual use of that term to mean any kind of grouping that is happening. The phrase, your vibe attracts your tribe. That whole everything. I very, very much grew up with that. In the last few years or so, I have been repeatedly informed that First Nations, Native Americans, indigenous people around the world find the blatant reuse of a term that has been used culturally for generations to be cultural appropriation and cultural erasure all at once. That's kind of my synthesis. Um, tribe is a term to describe ethnic kinship groups in ways that are not respected 
by a find your tribe quiz on BuzzFeed, so to speak. There's um, actually a really long list of terms and phrases that non-native people need to unlearn the use of. I have a link to that list in my show notes. And that list also includes some historically anachronistic misunderstandings that betray our white supremacist cultural obsession with their ongoing genocide. Please go read the article that I linked. It is a vice.com article, which I know probably sets up some red flags for you guys, but it's a good one. I've seen it passed around several times. I've come back to it several times. It's, it's one of the good ones from vice. They're not always terrible. Now that we have discussed this, I am going to expect you and me to both be more aware of these terms when they come up in our daily lives and to speak up where we can. I have been very not great at unlearning all of these. I've, I've gotten a few pretty good out of my system and, uh, but I have a hard time calling people out. So now that I'm bringing this up here, let's all, uh, pinky swear through the internet that we're going to be better about this. So you hold me accountable. I'm going to psychically hold you accountable. We're going to do better. Okay. But then also important caveat to this, the term tribe is also an anthropological term used to describe specific kinds of societal organizations. It's not like it's a cultural only term. It's just, it has a lot of meaning, right? It's the tribes of North America. It's the tribes of Africa. Like it's a term that has cultural meaning, but is not necessarily only the provenance of culture. It also is in the provenance of science. It's, it's, it's complicated. Just stop using it casually. That's the TLDR. The fact that it is an anthropological term, though, is not an excuse to go around using it to describe every social group that you mesh with well. So maybe as a way to just start being better about this, just don't use the term at all until you understand exactly how and when it is appropriate to use. Examples of that would include what Jemison is doing here in making a point about how social groups organize themselves out of individuals. I believe that she is very much using the term correctly here. And also, I know that in her latest book, The City We Became, that Leslie from Stuck on Arrakis and I will be covering at some point in the future, I know that she worked with some Native American consultants to create one of the characters. And so I really, really think that in this instance, this is very much the correct use of the term tribe when not referring to people that actually have tribal status in the real world. Okay, enough of me fumbling to explain fraught social issues. Let's return to fraught physical hazards. <laughs> As soon talks with this embryonic tribe, which I think gets absorbed into Renani Slater, We'll have to return to that when we get to their war in book two. She talks with this embryonic tribe about what the rifting event was like. And I really appreciate her reasoning here because it speaks to my twin obsessions with geology and geography. To quote the book, being aware of a geological event and knowing what that event means in the real human sense are two very different things. This is the crux of what I was missing when I just was studying geology in college. And this is the crux of what I gained from changing my major to geography, though I didn't know it at the time. I thought I was just getting away from physics and going into GIS. This is the crux of what I really got out of it. Knowing what something is in a geologic sense and a human sense at the same time. 
being able to see the the meaning of a geologic hazard makes your ability to respond to it far more effective. Seeing the social structures that will collapse in response to the physical structures collapsing is an absolutely critical part of responding holistically, meaningfully, equitably to hazards, disasters, and risk. My ability to understand the social components of the Cascadia subduction zone earthquake hazards also prepared me to understand the underpinnings of the protests going on currently as part of the movement for Black Lives. Before I switched to geography, I saw all the unreinforced masonry in Portland and cheered any and all measures taken to warn people of that hazard without hesitation. After I switched to geography, I realized that the impact of some of those measures would not fall on all parties equally. And in fact, the NAACP in Portland was part of the pushback, a big part of the pushback, to the proposed unreinforced masonry warnings. I have a link to a local news article that captures the entire story in the show notes from the Willamette Week. There isn't a clear answer to that particular problem or any others like it, many others like it, because so many of these systems are too deeply interwoven to easily fix overnight. But what is important is that we do our best to be as inclusive as possible by centering those who are most often pushed to the margins in all levels of planning and decision making. Essentially, what I'm saying is Black, queer, trans, disabled lives matter. More on that in the journal entry at the end. Bottom-up decision making, distributed leadership, community voices, centering those who are traditionally marginalized... This is how you tackle these thorny, wicked, seemingly impossible problems. Anything else is perpetuating the problem and letting it morph into new forms. It just is. (sighs) We next get a very thorough description of what an ideal breeder pair looks like. The description from the book is literally... Tall and strong and bronze and almost offensively healthy, with nice even features, all of it crowned with a shock of gray ash blow hair that's almost like a pelt about their shoulders. The woman in this pair is described as having wide hips and the man as being a bit on the scrawny side, though as soon figures he'll beef up if he's got five women to service for his keep, which I love because it's such a great casual role reversal of who holds the power in a reproductive dynamic. But in the larger sense, I just appreciate this description because it is so not a wispy waif of European beauty standards. This is just a completely different vision of beauty. And it's so like you will look at this and appreciate how beautiful it is. And I love it. I tried to find a picture of someone who seemed to fit this description. Um, I have no idea if I did a good job of that, but I found a picture of Jasmine Creighton from a blog post that she wrote on Blavity.com, where she's looking at the camera and smiling and has this really cute, big, poofy afro. And she's clearly wearing makeup and she's got a bracelet on and nail polish, but she's not wearing anything else. And she's got her arm positioned across her chest. So her hand is by her face and you can just see like her collarbones and her shoulder. And she came up as fitting the description best when I was looking at my description versus what I was getting from Google, trying to Google like 
bronze-skinned women because I, nah, I wanted a picture to look at. And she's got a big, broad nose, very even eyes, very much black is beautiful sort of aesthetic rather than trying to fit into a European sort of aesthetic. So, I mean, I think the book description does as a good a job as me describing a picture to you, but I wanted to confess that I looked up a picture of black people to understand a description of black being beautiful. That sounds so weird when I say it out loud. Do you guys want to see this deep into my navel? Is that necessary? We learn that this embryonic tribe, this group of people that we are talking to, were living ordinary, privileged hipster lives in a mid-sized city named Aleved, attending an open mic on a street with a cruelly colonistic name, Shemshena Street, and that nostalgia is frowned upon in society, in Sanzid society, to the point of instinct. The geologic event of the rifting is described as a sort of ripping, tearing event along the northern horizon, followed by a glow that spread east and west, and then an ash storm that suffocated people and heralded the end of their comfortable lives. We learn that everybody can cess uh, seismic energy when the event is that huge, which is a neat reminder of how incredibly different their basic experience of the world is from ours as readers. I think that's a super cool world building sneaky move on Jemison's part. I adore it because you think that these are just people like you would meet on the street, right? But it's like, no, everybody has this like little background piece of themselves because of events in Solanagist and Kalenle's survival of the apocalypse and the shattering season. You know, like there's a there's an element in this world that everybody shares that we just don't. And I like that. That's really, really cool, visceral world building to me. Esrin reflects that the node station near Alebed is the reason that these people are alive at all, rather than having been crushed under the debris of their city falling literally apart, which would have happened. Let's deconstruct this account of the rifting with what we know. Alabaster puts the center of the rift right in the fulcrum grounds. So all of the city of Eumenes definitely went down with it. The Imperial Palace, all of it. He used the strength that he had gathered to crack the plate and pull it apart slightly. So that was the tearing that this group saw. And they didn't feel the shaking because, like we just discussed, an origin and a node station did what Essun had done in Terimo. So when the plates got pulled apart, think rift zone like East Africa, pulled apart, the compressed rock and magma under the surface would have decompressed explosively in response along the entire length of that rift or along that crack, that section that he pulled apart. That would have been the red light that they saw flaring up. That would have been the first explosive booming decompression. And then it would have propagated east and west. The process would have propagated away from the fiery center to the east and west along the line that he had started. Asun confirms for us that they experienced an ash storm rather than a pyroclastic cloud. And though the term just is used here, like it's not, it's not just, it's still suffocated people. The strength of the outgoing explosion was so great. This decompression explosion was so great that the rock was pulverized into particles so tiny and so broken that it turned to cement in people's lungs. 
And that is just so horrifying and so terrible. It literally, like I mentioned earlier, I'm reading a book about Krakatoa. And last night I read the section of the chapter that actually describes the 20 hour period in which the eruption took place and the, the ash that came out of that and went up into uh, Sumatra in some places was like this. It was turning to cement in people's lungs, burning them. It's, it's nasty when, when that much rock just vaporizes essentially because Krakatoa if you guys don't know Krakatoa literally blew itself out of existence six miles of island went goodbye in the final blast of the eruption and uh, that is why it had such a profound impact on the global weather system also we should tangent slightly to say that a pyroclastic cloud is more along the order of what took out Pompeii and uh Herculeum, I want to say, is the other city that died with Pompeii. A pyroclastic cloud is a fast-moving wall of hot gas, rock, and ash that will burn, suffocate, and crush you all at once. An ash cloud is missing a few of those ingredients and is slightly more survivable. Slightly. The young lady telling the story and the one man of the group clearly have some apocalypse romance happening as a result of surviving this traumatic experience together. I guess, I suppose it's possible that they could have been an item before the event, but it seems like a trauma bond. <laughs> Assume casually is assuming that he'll be uh, taking care of all four of the women. I assume that that's a sign that everything is up for grabs during a season <laughs> or something proverbial like that. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, the group takes a moment to have some collective nostalgia Asun ruminates on how most Equatorials didn't even have go bags because they are so used to the node stations protecting them. And I'm over here thinking they're complacent to the need because they're complicit in the fuckery that's protecting them. So they kind of deserve it a little bit. As the days pass, we learn that these are the northmost survivors in the mass of the refugees. And if you look at the map, you'll see that that is almost a third of the lower half of the continent being just assumed completely dead. Like, yikes! That's a lot of death and destruction. I mean, the map's not super detailed, but like, that's a really large swath of total death to extend out from the rift, to go all the way down to where Eleven is marked. Like, that's, that's bad. <laughs> that's really bad. But Essun is pushing all of that aside, because it doesn't matter what the rift is about. She already has enough bad memories. Doesn't matter. Totally has nothing to do with her. Which is funny, because those bad memories of hers are kind of integral to why and how the rifting is happening. <laughs> like, it has everything to do with you. The pain of Corundum's loss is what's driving her deliberate forgetfulness and also the fury that Alabaster is experiencing that is driving him to ending the world this way. Like, it has everything to do with her. But she won't figure that out for another few months. I think pretty much as soon as she sees Alabaster, she puts it together that it was him. So I was going to say a few years, but I think it's actually only a couple months till they get to Kastrima. Anyhow, we know that they walk long enough for their shoes to wear thin. 
and they get to trade supplies in the strange economies of apocalypse bartering. Jemison slips in the phrase, a year without a summer, which is a really nice hat tip to Tambora's eruption of 1816, not to be confused with Krakatoa, which erupted in 1883. Both of them are in Indonesia. They're very close to each other. You were forgiven if you've gotten them confused. <laughs> There's a lot of things going off in the 1800s down there. Uh, there's a really good book, though, about Tambora. It's called Tambora, The Eruption That Changed the World. It's by Jillian Darcy Wood. And I also found a super cool article that was almost more like a GIS. It was annotated with map pins about that eruption based on a different book by the same author on the topic of the same eruption. And I found that on a website called Branch Collective. I had never heard of it before, but it was really cool when I was playing with it. So find that in the show notes. Uh, the TLDR of the book, though, that's relevant here, is that Tambora, a volcano in Indonesia, erupted in 1816 and affected global weather patterns in a super, super dramatic fashion that was actually only recently put together into a coherent event rather than being a bunch of disparate events from around the world. For example, a year without a summer, people weren't really quite sure why that was happening. We now know that it was because of everything that Tambora put into the atmosphere. It also affected the weather visually. So there's a whole part of the book where it talks about how the stormy weather that was the backdrop to Frankenstein getting written was Tambora storms. There's a bunch of paintings from the period that are just all these dark, stormy, scary skies. And the author makes the case that these were all paintings of volcano flavored sunsets and stuff. Really cool book. Highly recommended. So I like that Jemison threw in the phrase a year without a summer into this because when Indonesian volcanoes erupt, like you could be forgiven for thinking that the world is ending. So the apocalypse barter economy is weird, but Esun doesn't mind taking advantage of it because Esun and Tonki both know for separate reasons that this is not going to be so much a year without a summer season as the start of a snowball earth phase. <laughs> which is, you know, a little bit less survivable. But Asun's just not going to care about major existential crises for the entire planet. She's just going to focus on getting to her daughter. Because her cup is already overflowing, right? She too much shit on her plate. Like, knowing that the world is almost certainly completely fucked, it's like, who cares? I'll just trade for the damn boots. It's fine. And at this point, even Asun has to admit that they are now a group. Because she shares out the food equally, and each person has a role to play in the group. Uh, I like that even though Esun has really no desire for a party per se, she believes in stone lore and in its efficacy in keeping her alive. And it's just such this backbeat of what everyone in the stillness learns that it's like, well, stone lore makes it very, very clear <laughs> that in this situation, you need to share your resources and not hoard and be a team. And like, she doesn't even have to believe it actively, right? It's just in her subconscious. It's in everyone's subconscious, or at least everyone who got a quality education. Stone lore is survival. And that's going to guide her decisions even when she's not super into the results. It's just reflexively where she's at. So let's just sort of look at the motley crew of Essien's chosen family. Hoa is useful and freaky because he doesn't sleep or eat. Handy and freaky. Donkey has valuable tools to trade and acts like a feral cat rather than a normal refugee. 
The narrative here says, she can pass for just another displaced person rather than calmless, which I annotated to read, she can pass for just another refugee rather than homeless. Because it made me think about how we pass judgment of humanity and worthiness onto various people that all need essentially the same kinds of help, depending on how we as a society think they got there, right? Like a family displaced by a war that literally blew up their house is somehow more deserving than a family whose primary breadwinner can't pay the rent because they can't hold down a job because of PTSD. Like, I'm not saying that, like, I have the answers to any of this, but just that's what this sentence made me think. Tonki specifically trades a compass, which is considered super, super valuable at this point because North is visually hidden because of all the ash clouds, but it's still magnetically present. If I recall correctly, in a year or so of farther in the narrative, all the iron in the air will make magnetic compasses useless, or maybe it's as they go closer to the rift, they get useless, but like, that's not a, a thing yet. And this part freaks Esun out because Tonki basically lets slip that she knows what Esun is, but Esun isn't quite sure yet. Like even on a first read, I was convinced that Tonki knew what was going on. But I mean, of course, you can't have put together that her and Beanoff are the same person yet, because if you're a first time reader, you literally haven't met Beanoff. But, you know, going back through it, it's like... It's so, even on a first read, it's so obvious. Even if you forget who Beanoff is, it's obvious if you're on a reread at this point. But Esun is really, really hoping that her secret is safe. So she kind of just convinces herself that her secret is safe. She, she convinces herself her secret is safe. Hoa's boots wear out first, I would assume, because he's super heavy and hard on them, because he's actually a mountain and not a child. Or the boots were worn out at first, but I, I think it's because he's technically a mountain. <laughs> we get a travel montage of the terrain they're passing over with what sounds like a description of old train tracks and other imperial road type things and cow paths and dead civ ruins all jumbled together. They're heading more or less due south, but the road they travel is not marked on the map, although it is described in the narrative, which I was sad about. I will be attempting to annotate the book if I can possibly figure out how to make reasonable annotations on the map. But the high road that they travel on and has a name is not drawn on the map. Hump. Eshun basically decides to believe that Hoa can find Nasun. And somehow the way that they travel convince her that he's correct. And I don't see why. There's no proof. I think she's putting way too much trust into him. But he's so sincere and he means, well, I mean, he's not lying to her. So she's not wrong, but she, I just, I feel like she's really oddly trusting of his assurances, given everything. It's like as though she thinks she's getting confirmation of his success, but I don't see that confirmation happening. So that's weird. I don't get that. But he is not lying to her, so it's not like she's wrong to trust him. They take a shortcut and almost get killed by a strategically positioned comm along the way. And then the signal that Hoa is following gets weaker and weaker, to the point that he's not certain of anything but the direction. 
I think that there are two reasons for this. The first reason is that Nasin and Jija are in a cart, and so they're getting farther away at an increasing rate every day, since Asun is following on foot. The second reason is that at this point, Nasun and Jija have now passed directly over Kastrima, and so the signal from Kastrima is overdriving Hoa's sense of the ever-attenuating signal from Nasun. Kind of like if you were trying to spot a star that's right next to a full moon, right? Like, it's there, and you know it's there, but the light of the moon is just overwhelming your ability to see things behind it. I do wonder at this point why Hoa didn't know about Kastrima at all, because there's a bunch of stone eaters there. You'd think he would be aware of this place with a bunch of stone eaters and stuff. Like, he's been active enough since Alia to know where to geodize himself to meet Asun outside of Tarimo. So why is he ignorant of Kastrima? He's been around since Kastrima's been around, like at, in its current iteration. My only thought is that that knowledge must be part of what's locked up in the crystals of himself that he's carrying, the parts that aren't in his active mind. We learn again that Asun completely knows what a satellite is. When she thinks about how the community that Hoa is, is sensing can't be a satellite fulcrum because they aren't nearly far enough south for that. She says that they're still months from the Antarctic, so I'm guessing they're roughly halfway between the equator and the Antarctic. But yeah, in her thought of that, she uses the term satellite, so I'm extra annoyed with her for being silly about the term later. Again, I'm annoyed with Esun, not Jemison. I'm sure that if I can probe the reasoning hard enough, it's Esun's fault. <laughs> She thinks that it wouldn't make sense for refugee origins like herself to be gathering at, into a band at this point because it would make them stand out, which is totally logical. The thing that she's not considering is what if that grouping existed before the season even started? Obviously, also not something she would consider, but it extra makes sense when you consider she's like, well, why would refugee origins gather? That makes no sense. Well, if they're not refugees and <laughs> they were gathered already, then there's no reason to break up just because it's a season. So they angle off a bit from due south. The narrative doesn't say which direction, but I'm going to assume that it was west because that is the direction of the Mers Desert that we see mentioned in book three. So I'm just going to assume that they angle west, but I don't know for sure. Maybe when we get to Kastrima's Exodus, we'll get some more details. Essen is starting to crave fresh vegetables. Though I suspect that this is just a craving rather than nutritional distress like scurvy. I assume that the travel rations in this world know to take scurvy into account. And there's probably plenty of vitamin C that's being very deliberately put into the, you know, nut paste packet thingies that they're buying and trading for along the way. So I suspect it's just a craving to give you a sense of time rather than like she's actually suffering from scurvy. We learn that Tonki is out of her hormone replacement therapy potions. <laughs> I guess we could call them HRP, hormone replacement potions. The slack is making her cranky and sprout hair. And I am going to say, as somebody who has adjusted to artificially changed hormone levels, I have so much empathy for Tonki. The crankiness is just... Like when your hormones get yanked about artificially, it's just... It rarely feels good emotionally. It's just, I mean, you know how much fun it is doing it naturally? Yeah. <laughs> I've never done uh, HRT, but I have spent way too many years on hormonal birth control, which is close enough to the same thing for this level of empathy 
It's just ugh. like birth control is a great thing in principle, but the completely fucked up social history of how it got created and tested on Puerto Ricans, plus how not great it was for me, just makes me cringe when I think of taking hormones again and makes me have lots of empathy for anybody suffering from medically induced hormone changes, whether or not they are desirable. I still have empathy for the side effects. So at one point, Hoa and Estian have some time alone at the end of the chapter, and Hoa is struggling and failing to explain how he is sensing Nasun and Kastrima. We know it isn't sessing, and we also know it's not really tuning, at least not the way it gets explained in book three. It's more like he's just sort of sensing, seeing, tracing the silvery magic that is life energy, the, the other side of orogeny, right? The tuning was orogeny plus the silver or plus magic. I'm, I'm guessing that that's what's going on is he's sensing the silvery magic. I think that that's what they can do. I'm not totally sure. He can't explain it because nobody ever makes up words for this properly. He does know that there is a small community there of many origins and it super confuses Essun because her situation is kind of a unique one and it makes no sense for there to be a whole bunch of people like her because there is not a lot of people like her, not in terms of her quest. She's just completely stumped as to why that's happening. And Hoa also points out that he can tell more are coming towards this place. We know that this is because Yika is doing her orogenic bat signal thing that pulls people towards Kastrima. The internal narrative of Essun sort of gives us a few more peaks of uh, Cyanite's sarcasm peeking out from under the Essun mask as she ponders the puzzle of where to go next. The map at the start of the book is super duper unhelpful about where Kastrima is, which I think is a great narrative device because Kastrima is hidden. But I'm still going to be annotating my map as we go along if I possibly can. And if I ever get a decent idea of where these things are, I will absolutely share a picture with you guys don't hold your breath. <laughs> Esun makes the decision to go to the place where Hoa lost the signal. Tonki doesn't bother questioning the choice or asking for more details, which is good because Esun doesn't have any more details for her. She sarcastically speculates that maybe there was a memo from the fulcrum to get another fulcrum built, which is like funny, not funny, because literally Shafa 2.0 has been doing that in the far south with found moon in the last 10 years since she's become Essun. But of course, that's not at all what she means or what the fulcrum meant to have happen, right? Because he's totally rogue. She's uneasy about all of the everything, but she's determined to get Nasun. So that's where the chapter concludes. For stone lore, we get verse nine from tablet one on survival. Judge all by their usefulness the leaders and the hardy, the fecund and the crafty, the wise and the deadly, and a few strong backs to guard them all. Tablet 1 on Survival, verse 9. I think that this lists the use cast in a nice mnemonic that lets you know what the values and orders of society are. Useful little catchphrase for preserving your civilization in the face of repeated wipeouts. So leaders would be leadership. Hearty means resistant. The fecund are breeders. The crafty are innovators. The wise I wasn't sure about. 
Well, okay, wise and deadly, I'm not sure about because Lorist fits both of them. Deadly could also fit Origins. Strongback, obviously, is Strongback. Pretty simple on that one. Judge all by their usefulness. The leaders and the hardy, the fecund and the crafty, the wise and the deadly, and a few strong backs to guard them all. Tablet 1, on survival, verse 9. You have been listening to the Broken Earth Spoilers podcast, a Fox and Raven Media production. Connect with us on Discord and social media. Rate us in your favorite podcast app. And remember to support us on Patreon. Okay, after show, accountability time and discussion of things that didn't fit in the episode otherwise. I do not want to make these uh, after shows always about me. I feel like I should definitely devote time to things other than navel gazing, but I also very much want to be accountable to my process and my ongoing education and commitment to doing this as not just a trend. So occasionally I am going to turn it back on myself and we will get to listen to me talk about thoughts that I have inside my own navel, shall we say. For today, journaling is goddamn difficult. (laughs) I said that at the start and I'm just going to be upfront. I did not do a great job of journaling last week uh, in my anti-racism journal things that I talked about. I have now put the books in a more prominent spot and I'm making myself do it first thing in the morning with my coffee rather than scrolling through Facebook, Uh, not putting it off for when I have time later because of course I never have time later because later doesn't exist. So I have been doing the journal entries for the past four days, but the preceding week was pretty much a matter of putting it off till tomorrow. And I just sort of was like, well, that was bad. I will reset my counter and just start where I was at and just continue forward. What I am learning from doing this process is that my preceding eight years of thinking about a lot of this stuff makes some parts of these books not as useful and not as relevant because I've already worked through a lot of this stuff mentally just in all of my other reading and thinking about stuff over the last eight years. Like the fact that I'm not brand new to these thoughts and these processes means that some of the stuff I'm good on. Like, or I'm, I'm not good on, but I'm ahead of the baby steps that are being described here. You know, I'm ready for kindergarten or first grade or whatever after this preschool phase. I didn't do a lot of that work in a journal. I just, I thought about it a lot. <laughs> and so then to build on that, my unique circumstances make some of this stuff not ring true for me. Some of the ways that I've been isolated or able to isolate myself, it means that some of the things in these journals, some of the reflective prompts don't ring true for me. They don't reflect in experiences I've had, right? Like I was able to avoid ever being in the scenarios that are described. So like the whole role playing exercise of like, how do you feel about this is like, I I literally have never been there. I, I literally have never had a position of power in which to talk over and white splain a black woman's experience with management. Like I just, I, I've never been there. But for the last eight years, I have used that sort of narrative as a way to justify my white exceptionalism. And that's not great. <laughs> it's um, it's a distinction that I figured out, I think on Monday, I am unusual. 
not exceptional. I mean, I can be exceptional in other ways. Exceptionally, yeah, that's relevant. I'm unusual, not exceptional, which is a really important difference in digging into the parts of racism and white supremacy that I didn't manage to avoid. I can be unusual. That really is a part of who I am. I don't have to deny that that's been my experience, but I cannot use that as a synonym for being exceptionally unracist because that kind of exceptionalism is itself a part of upholding white supremacy culture. That was something I had never had explained to me by any of the readings I've ever done. And the book Me and White Supremacy laid it out. And it was amazing because it hit so much of that, like in the background stuff in my mind where I didn't have words for it. But there's just this sense of like, I have this justification going. Why do I need to have this justification going? Why is this justification always so burningly intense? Like it's the it's the not all white people reflex, right? Where you feel the need to defend your not racistness. And it's like, well, if you're really not racist, then why do you feel so determined to prove it? And so this part of me and white supremacy book explained that as white exceptionalism. And I was just like, ah, I have a term for it now. That was, that was really, really appreciated. Appreciated. So, you know, I'm willing to read all the stuff that makes me uncomfortable because it doesn't apply to me to get to these things that it's like, God damn, I knew I was missing something. I knew I was missing something. So I found one of the somethings I was missing and that made me very happy. Other accountability activities, I am working on creating a seven-day letter writing plan for myself that's focused by geography. I feel very overwhelmed a lot of times with deciding what issues are most relevant. Um, there's more issues to care about than I could learn about ever. <laughs> there's more work than any one person could possibly do. And I feel like I have to pick which issues are most relevant. And I feel very uncomfortable with doing that because it feels like assigning value judgments to other people's struggles and good. And then I sit on my hands and do nothing. And it's really horrible. I got a degree in geography, right? So what if I did it by geography? So I'm building a like seven tiers up of like government kind of plan where I can write one day a week to a different level of government of people that actually represent me and focus on the issues that are geographically close to me. Because if these issues are everywhere, then there's no need for me to figure out what the best soup kitchen in Memphis is. I could just figure out what the best soup kitchen in Portland is. You know, geography maybe should be my filter rather than trying to assign value judgments to causes or people. I should just find what's most important right next to me. So I've been building this spreadsheet for myself to track it and to have the emails for all of the relevant people and to, you know, track the issues that I send them letters with. And of course, it's become much more of a bear than I thought it was going to be when I conceived of it. So I haven't actually pulled off a solid week of sending letters yet, but it's coming along. And I've definitely sent some letters to people that don't represent me for other more national causes. Uh, when there's a call to action, it's like, well, OK, I'm just it's not something I'm going to do every week because it's not that part of that geographic focus, but it's at least getting me into the rhythm of like, I can do this myself. There's something to be said for not reinventing the wheel um, and following other people's lead for sure. But I also feel like I need the ability to corral my outrage to something that I can feel like I can make a difference on. So this is maybe my way of 
starting to really zero in on making the world a better place where I am. I don't know. Expect updates. Maybe at some point I'll have a template I can share with you guys and you can fill it out for yourselves. I don't know. That's a pie in the sky dream. Uh, another project I'm working on is this giant letter to my school I told you guys about. Um, it's, ugh, it's a lot of heaviness and work and it still needs further refinement before it's ready to send. And I've been focused on writing this episode instead. I did get good feedback from my stepmom and my bio mom, which was nice, but it's, it's a doozy of a letter. I need to, it needs to be perfect before I send it. I'm also supporting a live streamer with some money every night he goes out to protest in Portland. I don't actually watch the videos as they happen live, usually because I'm like spending IRL time with my partner at that point in the evening. I sort of dip in and out of them. You know, if I see cop lights going, I'll turn the sound up and we'll watch with the sound on for 10 minutes or so. But we, we were trying to, you know, wind down at that time of night and be ready to go to bed for the next day. So I'm watching it, but not quite as thoroughly as I could be. But I am supporting him with money. So it's like I'm pseudo there in the in the protest a little bit. We haven't actually been to any protests physically yet. I am still stalled on finishing masks that I promised to people weeks ago, which gives me exactly no pride in myself. I feel like a horrible friend who is completely falling down on literally everything. I have piles of stuff that need to just be finished and I haven't done it. What's extra annoying is that if I would listen to the podcasts I want to listen to, I would have time to sew. But <sighs> there are only 24 hours in the day, it turns out, unfortunately. I'm also really reevaluating my relationship with social media. I definitely will have to keep it for at least podcast promotion. I also have a lot of family connections on it, but Discord is definitely a better space for actually getting high quality socialization and finding support with others that are equally torn on the obligation to scroll versus act. I mean, there's just, just the ability to build community in Discord is vastly superior to social media. If I set up a family server, would that make sense? Like, I don't know. And like, how do you keep up with news? Like, I'm one of those people that literally, I don't really get the news from anywhere other than Facebook. Well, no, that's not true. I got the New York Times app and I subscribed to it like a couple months ago. So I do get New York Times headlines with free access. Well, free. I paid access now. But um, yeah, I just, I feel like, how am I going to, be kept up with all of the like social activism if I leave social media. But then I'm on social media for hours a day feeling like I'm obligated to just keep scrolling and keep reposting because it's my obligation to speak up, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, if I just turned the damn app off, I wouldn't know. And then I wouldn't be stressed and wasting my time reposting shit. But at the same time, I wouldn't know. Like, how would I know? So that's sort of something I'm struggling with because I, I feel bad when I see something that's important and I don't react to it in some fashion. But then I feel like a clicktivist that spent four hours scrolling Facebook and it's just, that's the whole thing. Yeah, overall, I just still don't think I'm doing enough in a given week, even though I'm doing more than I've ever done for the movement for social justice. Some days I send a patch of replicated letters demanding justice for Breonna Taylor, which you can find on the website uh, that I've linked before and I will probably link again. Some days I'm working on this project and some days I just read a bunch of articles and some days I clean the house and I don't clean the house. I swipe at some of the dirt in the house. It's not really cleaning. I need to do more. I'm doing more than I was. I need better time management. 
I downloaded a Pomodo app last night. I might start using that. As for events in the world, the pandemic is getting worse again. People are taking it less seriously every day. The men that killed Ahmad Aubrey are getting proper convictions. I fully agree with hashtag defund the police. Fireworks going off like psychological warfare in major cities is a real thing that's totally happening, not a conspiracy theory. Links for all of those claims are in the description. Oh yeah, I have a note here to myself to talk about how black, queer, trans, disabled lives matter, because that was a comment I threw in much earlier. Um, so basically, I wanted to talk about this because I realized that there's a part of my subconscious that snickers at how long that phrase is. Like it feels really extravagant, extra, too much. And the other day I was walking on the sidewalk and it clicked that the reason I think that, the reason that little chuckling laugh track goes in my subconscious whenever I think about how to write that phrase or a similar phrase to it, is it's because I'm centering myself. Again, I'm treating myself as normal. I'm treating myself as the standard. I'm using myself as a yardstick. And that is white supremacy all over again. This thing that I keep spending energy telling myself I'm mostly free of. <laughs> Shut the fuck up, Aradia. No, you're not. In order for us to create a truly, truly equitable society, we have to center something that is seen as subconsciously laughable by someone who aggressively champions these causes consciously. I'm super pro-black, queer, trans, disabled lives matter. I, I'm super down. I, I'm very conscious to, to follow disabled activists, to support disability access at various events. You know, I, I make a no point of noting when there are ASL translators. Like, I consciously choose to support these things. And yet there's this little fucking thing in the back of my head that I wasn't acknowledging or challenging. And that's white supremacy culture. It's fucking insidious. So look to that in yourself. How long does that fill in the blank lives matter thing go before you think, all right, hold up. That's too much. That's just excessive. That's just too long. How, how many categories of marginalization go in there before you find that eye rolling? reaction in yourself. And then think about how many more marginalized populations there are that could fit into that. How many different combinations there are and how it feels like, oh my God, are we done yet? When you start mixing and matching and combining those slogans and phrases. It, just think about that. Okay. I think that's enough recording for now. I will see you guys next time. Thanks for listening.